Well, at least to begin with, uh, this afternoon, I would ask you to, again, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, texts that we looked at earlier. We also noted earlier something of the connection between privileges and responsibilities. You know, that's so in, in every sphere. These two things just, they go together. Uh, isn't it so, too, that the more we value a privilege, the more careful uh, we will be to be responsible in it. If you really value your citizenship, then you will be more careful to be responsible. Or maybe uh, more one that comes to mind, uh, driving. You really value driving, the privilege of driving your car? Well, if you do, then you will take care to drive responsibly. You'll have your vehicle insured. You will obey the rules of the road. And in fact, because you value the privilege of driving, well, that's even a motivation uh, to drive more carefully, more responsibly. Well, based on this, how highly do you value your privilege of being an adopted and beloved child of God? This certainly is no inalienable right uh, overwhelming grace to hell deserving children of the devil, and yet that God would desire us, that God would choose us, that God would adopt us uh, to be his own children, even uh, sending his own son in the fullness of time born of a woman to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive that which God had purposed from eternity past, verse 4, of Ephesians 1, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us acceptable in the beloved, and it's the idea of even acceptable as the beloved, as Christ himself. Well, that is our great privilege. Um, but gauging from our conduct, our carefulness in fulfilling our responsibilities as God's children, and it's right there. How much do we really cherish the privilege? How mindful are we of it and of our responsibilities in it? How motivated are we to live consistently, responsibly, uh, with that which is ours. Well, we uh, have already seen uh, that uh, the that brings with it the responsibility to honor God as our Father in heaven. We saw again in a reading of Malachi 1.6 as our call to worship. If God is our Father, then you know, he is to be honored. And as our sonship is, uh, is greater, more personal and intimate, and even the reality of that Old Testament type uh, in uh, uh, Israel's adoption, well, how much more then uh, should we honor him uh, by our worship and adoration, uh, by letting our light so shine before men that they, and seeing our good works, glorify him as our Father, and then also by our praying, by our trusting, and by our loving him. Uh, but then also, uh, being his children brings with it the responsibility uh, to show the family likeness. We Saw that, for instance, in Matthew 5, uh, 48, to be perfect as our Father in heaven 
is perfect. And we saw that in a number of other places as well. I won't now review those, but that's our responsibility. Uh, to be holy as he is, to show the family likeness. And it's to this end that God has made us his children by adoption. But not only that, he's also, as we saw from John 1, 12 and 13, uh, given us a new birth, that great work within. So kind of doubly obligating us, uh, as it were, uh, as those were his children, but he thereby equipped us to show the family likeness. First uh, John uh, 2.21, about those who are born of God, practice righteousness, even as Christ is righteous. Well, that's God's image restored, or that uh, we're saved that we should be partakers, Peter says, of the divine nature, meaning his moral uh, uh, nature. Well, again, do we realize how well equipped we are to live as God's children. It wasn't just a decision, and it wasn't only a legal transaction, but rather the new birth and the Spirit's work and so much more by way of grace. Well, how are we doing, brother? Are we really living up to our privilege or showing how we cherish the privilege of being God's beloved children? Well, I want to look at one more responsibility that is ours, especially because of adoption and our sonship. And it's this, that as adopted by God into his family, that means that we are now to love all other members of the family. Now, in saying that, well, that means certainly one family member in particular. And I would ask you to notice in your Bible, John chapter 8. We looked at it in the previous hour, but uh, let's look at it again. John chapter 8. Here our Lord Jesus is speaking to those who are finding fault with him and uh, clearly manifesting a, a hatred toward him. And he says in this connection, John eight forty two, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. But the point is, if God were your father, you would love me. This is exactly what would happen as a, a mark uh, or outworking of our sonship. Notice, if you would, the words of with which Paul closes the letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians in the 6th chapter, as Paul has this closing benediction in verse 24, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Now, when Paul penned these words, he was not referring to some special class of Christians there in Ephesus. Oh, you're all Christians, but now there are some of you who love Jesus, and, and grace to you is spent. No. Obviously, he's writing this to all of those people to whom he's been writing this letter. That is to say, believers on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, this is true of all believers. They love the Lord Jesus Christ 
insincerity, or you could even translate, I suppose, in perpetuity or without corruption, uh, the idea of a real lasting love for Christ. That marks all of the Lord's people. And so when Paul closes his letter, first letter to the Corinthians, uh, he does so with 16.22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Here, you guys know about him, and you don't love him. You don't have that love of, of personal attachment to him. Well, yeah, that deserves God's curse, and we'll certainly uh, get it. So with all who are strangers, they are unsaved, and therefore he pronounces the anathema upon them. And therefore the question is, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you, truly, do you love him? Well, how can I know? How will it be seen? Well, you've got the words of Jesus in John 14 and verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. We find statements like that elsewhere. Well, do you keep his commandments? Well, obviously, no, we don't perfectly. But do we do so purposefully? That is to say that on purpose and even consistently, Though we have our struggles with remaining corruption, yet this is what we do. Uh, not just in word. Love is not just some kind of sentimental notions uh, about Jesus. No, it's love that is real, uh, that is moving, that is evidenced in this. Well, does love for Christ cause you to obey him out of love for him, not just robotically, not legalistically, well, I've got to earn something. No, we know we don't earn anything, but we do endeavor to do that, which is pleasing, again, out of love for him. You know, here's a problem with the non-Christian. He doesn't really obey Christ because he doesn't love Christ. He's no heart for him. In fact, Jesus in John 14 went on, to say that when he says, he who does not love me does not keep my words. That's it. I'm not concerned to please him, uh, having no heart of love toward him. And as the Lord Jesus said there in John 8, 42, that we just read, this is proof that God's not that person's father. If God were your father, you would love me. But no, they proved instead, as he went on to say in that chapter, you are of your father the devil. And those people, they wanted religion all right. So too with the unsaved, many unsaved now. They they want religion, but not on Christ's terms. Not to repent and believe the gospel. Not uh, uh, his way. In fact, they will even argue, no, I'm, I'm God's child. But again, ultimately, they show. They have no heart for him, no love for him, and it's seen in their conduct toward him. And how many there are who... I have what Paul referred to in 2 Corinthians 11.4 as another Jesus, one they've manufactured in their own imagination, perhaps, and uh, no real concern to obey out of love the true Savior of sinners. Well, again, I would press this. And what about you? Uh, can it be said of you that you love Christ in sincerity or perpetuity, come what may? What does your conduct say? What do your real desires say? What does your life say? And I would simply say here, if you have no love for the Lord Jesus Christ, see that God is not your father. 
you are of your father the devil. And his end, as it now stands, is yours. Depart into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Oh, do you want that? If you're without Christ, do you want that? I'm happy to say it doesn't have to be that way. Because this same Savior that you now don't love, he came into this world to save sinners. And the command is not, love Jesus and you will be saved. The command is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right now where you are, and you will be saved. And then there will be that love for the Savior. As those who come to him, he says, no way will he cast them out. But now, for us as Christians, we do love. Our Lord Jesus. Uh, we can't live without We don't want to live without him. That uh, we obey even when it's difficult. You know, we battle against Satan and, and remaining sin. So as to consistently obey, again, notwithstanding our struggles. That is true of us, isn't it? I mean, by God's grace, would we not be willing to suffer for Christ? Well, why is this? What's the reason for this? Well, it's because we really do love him. We really do love the Lord Jesus, and it's right to see it. But now going back to his very words there in John 8, if God were your father, you would love me. Or to put it another way, because you love him, what does it say? But that God is your father, that you've been adopted by God. And as Jesus said there in John 14, the Father and I will come to him and make our abode with him. There's that fellowship, that life together. And isn't that further motivation then to live like it? If we are indeed members of this family, it's for us to love all family members and one in particular, the Lord Jesus himself. But obviously the Lord Jesus is not the only brother that we have or spiritual sibling, so to speak. Now, we are responsible to see and treat all true Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ. That is to say, we are to love all of the brethren always. Now, this is a pervasive, even dominant theme in the New Testament. I have no intention of trying to exhaust it. Uh, we all know this, that we are to love the brethren. And we know that Scripture sets forth as reason for this, that they truly are our brethren. We're part of that one big family. Come to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Here in the third chapter, the first seven verses, well, actually, even going back into chapter 2, Peter's been writing to specific uh, segments, if you please, of the congregation. Uh, to employees and those other under government. And then he talks to wives in verses 1 through 6 of 1 Peter 3. And then he addresses husbands in the seventh verse. But then we have these words, where now he's not talking to certain segments, but to all of those believers in those five, and those churches in those five Roman provinces. He says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. Love as brothers. Notice he is not saying love as if you were brothers. Rather, 
love this way because you are brothers. See it, that you're truly the same family adopted by the same uh, father. Uh, you've got texts like Romans 12.10 about uh, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, or Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. And these commands use a word distinct from that most common word for love. It, it is, well, it's our English word Philadelphia. Uh, it is literally love brother. In fact, you've got in Second Peter one seven. You remember where you're told to add to faith virtue, virtue knowledge. What well, says and add to godliness, King James, New King James, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. That is to say, Philadelphia to agape. Uh, it's love that's distinct from that general word for love. It is more specifically to love as brothers, and therefore, again, in view of our adoption. Uh, because of our adoption, we are truly all equally uh, adopted by God, the same Father. And so much so that all of us are joint heirs together with Christ, sharing his inheritance. But again, as I've already pointed out from John 1, here's where adoption and regeneration merge in our sonship. Uh, as many as received him to them, he gave the right or the power, uh, the authority to be children of God and to those uh, who believe on his name. And then he goes on to say who were born, who were born not of the flesh, uh, not of blood, nor of the will of men, but of God. So you've got adoption and the new birth or regeneration. And as I've already said, that doubly obligates us especially to love our brothers. You know, uh, adoption may bring with the obligation to love those who are family members, our brothers, but it, it doesn't guarantee that we will, you know, just like an earthly adoption. Well, okay, now this is an adopted child. It's very much the same uh, as uh, the other children of the family, but there's no guarantee there's going to be a, a loving relationship. But with the new birth, well, there it is. It's kind of like what we saw with family likeness. Well, so too with, with brotherly love. The, the new birth gives a, a new heart, a new nature, a, a disposition toward truly loving fellow Christians as brethren. So much so that this is used as an evidence uh, that we are brethren, that we do belong to Christ. Remember Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all men shall know uh, that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. Or John writes in 1 John 3, 14, here's how we know we've passed from death to life, how we've been uh, regenerated and made alive in Christ, because we love the brethren. Or when the writer of Hebrews, uh, you know how he's writing to these waffling Hebrews, and here they are, they're tempted to draw back, but he's still calling them brethren. They hadn't cast off the faith, but they're sorely tempted to uh, go back to Judaism. And therefore, when he writes that strong warning to them against apostasy in chapter 6, you're familiar uh, with those words, very sobering words. He then follows by saying in Hebrews 6, 8, uh, let me get to it here, uh, sorry, verse 9, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, 
though we speak in this manner. In other words, though I've given you such a strong warning as apostasy, I'm not saying you're apostate. I, I think better of you. I, I think that you're truly saved, and uh, where there's true salvation, there won't be that apostasy. Okay, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Sir, why do you think they're truly saved? What would cause you to say that? Verse 10 of Hebrews 6, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister, even in their waffling. They're still showing love to the brethren, as brethren. And that was evidence. That's what they're, oh, oh, here I see you are. Or notice Paul's wording in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to the believers there, all of those believers in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians and the fourth chapter. He says in verse 9, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. There's this internal work. You yourselves, God has done that work in your hearts, teaching you, inclining you to love one another. And therefore, he says, verse 10, And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. So he's saying it's God himself who's done this internal work in you, and he's commending them for that. Now, this does not mean that loving the brethren uh, just happens automatically, that, that we just we will just automatically love all true Christians. No, we fail. We fail even miserably. That's why we have all of these many, many, commands in the New Testament to love the brethren, along with much instruction and motivational arguments. Like why all of this uh, in God's word if, if loving the brethren was just automatic? No, it presupposes not only that it's not automatic, but it's difficult. No, uh, if we all loved perfectly as we are, we, we would need to be told this all the time. But as I've already referred to Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue. Is the writer not saying you are loving the brethren? He's just not through saying that back in chapter 6 and verse 10. Ah, but now all of you, he says, you must continue to do so. Uh, you must be told to continue to do so. Because it's to be so always. And it must be on purpose, deliberately, to love the brethren. Because the fact is, and this is what the language presupposes, we can fail. Uh, we can be hindered, and therefore he says, let brotherly love continue. Or even here, in that which I've read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul's commending these brethren. You indeed do love. And it's not just the people in your own church. You love all of those brothers who are in all of Macedonia. You, you are really uh, doing that, which is commendable uh, by way of loving one another, as God himself has taught you. And yet, you notice at the end of verse 10 there, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, you do so towards all the brethren, all Macedonia, but we urge you, strong words, he's really pressing them, we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Each of them. That means they all had room to increase more and more, though they had such commendable love to all of the brethren, not just to their church, but all Christians, and yet, he still says, you've got room to grow and increase, and you're to focus on doing so, very much on purpose, always. 
as if there's a constant deficit, as if uh, there is this constant struggle going on. No, all of you grow in this grace. Why all of this? Man to grow, all these other commands, motivational reason. Why all these things? Well, surely, for one thing, we clearly fail to live up to that very high standard that is set before us. As Jesus said, uh, as I have loved you, so you love one another. Or as John wrote in 1 John 3, 16, and here's how we know what love is. He laid down his life for us. There's love. That's the very epitome of it. And, John says, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. We're to love as Christ loved. Well, oh, that's why we have to be told that. That's such a high standard. But also, and especially, because we all struggle with that remaining corruption. The good I would, I don't do. The evil that I would not, that I do. When I would do good, evil's right there, present with me. Uh, surely, does that not hinder us in our loving one another? The selfishness that remain in corruption uh, can uh, produce in us uh, self-promoting, self-assertiveness, you know, having to have our own way. No, it's what I want. And if you cross my will, I'm going to get nipped. And after all, we know what's best. And pride shows itself not only in that, but in so many other ways. Or what if it's just, well, you know, dealing with this, helping this person, that's such a bother, it's such an inconvenience. Well, the list could go on, sadly. The list could go on. We could all write our own list of ways that remaining corruption hinders us from loving as Christ loves the brethren. But then, in addition, let's be honest, some brethren can make it very difficult to love them. We're still obligated. But it's not easy. Notice Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Text that we looked at earlier having to do with showing the family likeness. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Well, notice that comes on the heels of verses 31 and 32 of chapter 4. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. Well, it presupposes that we've been sinned against. It presupposes that we face the temptation uh, to be bitter or to be uh, unjustly uh, angry and to even engage in evil speaking with all malice and so forth. It says, no, no, you're not to do that. But the point is, those guys, they don't make it easy to love them. Look what they've done to us. Or you can see the same thing. Come to First uh, uh, Peter chapter 3. I've already looked at that. Love is brothers. Okay, that's our obligation toward all true Christians. We are brothers, and therefore we are to love as brothers. But you notice the very next words. When he goes on to write in verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. 
love as brothers, and who's this evil that you're receiving? You're not to return evil for evil. Well, it's not, is it not including at least those who are our brethren who've done us evil or who have reviled us? And yet we're to so love them that we don't respond in kind. But you know, it makes it hard to love them when they're doing that kind of stuff. Okay, well, we can trace this out in our own experience, I'm sure. But it says Peter went on to write over in the next chapter. Notice 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. It hides them. We're not harboring ill. We're not taking offense. But love will cause us to cover over, just like the snow that's out there right now. Maybe you've got some junk in the backyard, and, well, the snow's covered it, and you don't even see it. Well, so love covers even a multitude of sins from our brethren. It presupposes that our brethren will sin against us, but it also presupposes that we are still to love the brethren. Even then, even though, oh, it's not easy, maybe. Now, obviously, let me say, some sins ought not to be, can't be covered. You know, you've got in Matthew 18, your brother sins against you. Uh, you. You go to him, and mind you, he won't hear you. You take witnesses and so forth. This is some serious sin. Or uh, Luke chapter uh, 17, your brother sins against you. Rebuke him. Uh, if it's in his best interest, then you can't just cover over it and say, well, we'll mention, not mention it. If it's in his, or if it's one of those sins that, boy, this thing is so in my craw that every time I see that brother, that's all I can think about is what he did. Okay, then it can't be covered. You're going to have to rebuke him. You're going to have to deal with it. But having said that, uh, there are many sins that are not so blatant, maybe not intentional, maybe not noticed by the offender. Well, surely it's those sins that love covers. Now listen to the language of Mark chapter uh, 11. Here you've got the picture of one who's before God praying, and, and, uh, uh, and it comes to mind of someone's sin uh, against that individual. It's Mark chapter 11, and it will be verse 25. Mark eleven twenty-five. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Now, this is not like the passage in Matthew, someone has something against you, and that comes to mind, I've got to leave off my worship and go make it right with this guy. This actually has you right there still praying. And it comes to mind that you've got ought, they've done something to you, and you've got ought, but you forgive them in principle right there on the spot. That's love covering even real sins. That guy did this, but I can cover that. I can put it out of sight, not take offense. Now, if that's so with regard to actual sins, that love covers those rather than taking offense or uh, uh, harboring ill will, what about things that are not sins? What about those things where... I mean, this person just as quirky as the day is long, and boy, it can be so annoying, they're so quirky. 
Now, I don't know anybody like that, but I'm just using that as an illustration. Uh, they're just quirky as they can be. Love will cover that quirkiness if it'll cover sins. Or uh, slights. They're maybe not even uh, conscious of it. It was some thoughtlessness on their part. Or what about disagreements? Difference of opinion and so forth. And maybe it's about doctrine or maybe it's about other things. No, we're still to love. Even with a fervent love. To love as brothers. To let brotherly love continue. Uh, you know, speaking of disagreements, I think of Paul and Barnabas. And, you know, the language that's used there in Acts 15, it was no mild disagreement. I mean, it, the word points to real emotions engaged. It was kind of a heated disagreement that Paul and Barnabas had, whether to take Mark or not. And I'm sure they both had uh, principles on which they were operating, by which they thought, no, this is the right thing to do. But in any event, though they could no longer share the yoke, they parted company, I find it so telling that after this, when Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he wrote in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 9 uh, of Barnabas as his equal, as still a laborer going about the Lord's business. Now, this, again, is after that uh, rupture of their relationship that led to their going different ways there in Acts 15. No, 1 Corinthians 9, 6, me and Barnabas, we're, we're equals in what we're doing. Um, the point is, Scripture does not say that loving the brethren is always easy. And yet, it does say that we're to love the brethren. That means even when it's not easy, even when Paul and Barnabas can have uh, an emotional, a fervent disagreement, uh, still loving the brethren as brethren, because, well, we are family members, and the fact that we are brethren, that we are family members, uh, is actually an, to be an aid to this end. Oh, oh wait, a minute. this is my brother. We can't be falling out like this. Uh, this is this is my family. You know how John, in his first letter, keeps sounding this note of, of love uh, for the brethren. Well, notice, I mean, he says, for instance, chapter 4, that here, those who are born of God, this is it. They do love. That's, that's going to happen. That's when the evidence of regeneration. But notice how he closes First uh, John chapter 4 and then goes on into chapter 5 on, on this very note about our kinship to one another, our mutual relationship to our Father. When he says in verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, 1 John 4, 21, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And, uh, that's evidence of the new birth. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Well, the, the point is, John's argument is, look, you're related to one another. You're brethren. You're both begotten of the same heavenly father. And therefore, you, you love the one who gave them the new birth. You're going to love those who have been born again. You're going to love the brethren because they are family members. And, and this line of reasoning then, 
should aid us in fulfilling our responsibility uh, to be mindful of our sonship and theirs, our brethren, that we see their relationship to our Father, and we see the Father's love for them. Can you not love them? Sing the Father's love for them? See Christ's brotherly love for them and for you, notwithstanding all of our sin against him. And yet there's that kind of love. Well, to keep this in mind and to see fellow Christians for who they are and who they are to us, who we are to them, and who we all are to God, our Father in heaven. In light of that relationship, will you, can you, be contrary to your spiritual siblings or even to think of hating them? Well, this is kind of the reasoning used in First John there. So, brethren, I would say use that as an aid when someone is difficult to love or when we see ourselves falling so far short with that high standard, our remaining corruption, stop and think, no, wait a minute, this is, this is my brother. How can I be this way? Uh, this is one love by the Father. You know, this works out even in a, in a Christian marriage uh, where, wait a minute, that, that, that wife uh, that you're ready to sin against, yeah, this is God's daughter. That husband, he read it. This is God's son. Uh, are you ready to sin against God by, well, th that same line of reasoning with all of our brethren? This is this is God's child. This is my brother, and even though yeah, he's treating me like a scallywag, yet I still have my obligation to love him and. By remembering that relationship we all have with the Father, our adoption, uh, it's to be an aid. Well, he's begotten of God, and therefore I love him who begot. I therefore will love him who has begotten. But then along with this, another aid to loving one another always and, and growing more and more in it is to keep conscience sensitive to our never-changing responsibility to love the brethren. Perhaps to memorize the commands and the motivational arguments regarding this so that we'll think this way, so as to live this way. That's part of Romans 12 too, not being conformed to this world, transformed by the renewing of our minds. But then also, and especially, when it seems difficult to love, to recognize the great advantage, the great help we have to do so, because remember again, the new birth. Yeah, the adoption, that doesn't necessarily enable us. We should love as brothers. That's, okay, good reasoning there. But as far as just like with the family likeness, wait a minute, but it's not just a legal transaction of adoption. There's also that great internal work, the Holy Spirit indwelling and enabling us and bearing the fruits of the Spirit, the first of which is love. And then ongoing grace from him who said, without me you can do nothing, you abide in me, I knew you bear much fruit, who then went on to say to us about whatever you ask, it will be given you, and this the Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. 
Well, obviously, it means to ask for grace to love one another as well as other graces and to deliberately grow with us. As in First Peter 1, give all diligence to add to faith, virtue, to virtue, uh, knowledge, to knowledge, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. Diligently add to grow specifically in all of these graces, and that includes this. And, again, we are God's enabler. Don't wait until you feel like loving someone. You feel like loving the brethren. Now, by God's grace, we do have real love for one another, and it's a felt love, and I'm grateful to God for that. But, you know, there are occasions it's going to be difficult. It is difficult. Well, love is not just an emotion. It's not first an emotion. You know, like when uh, we've got that command from Leviticus, quoted by our Lord, to love our neighbors ourselves. Well, how do you love yourself? It's not just some warm, fuzzy feeling you have when you see yourself in the mirror. Uh, no, it's I take care of myself. It's In other words, it's seen in action. Like what it says, here's how we all love is he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, and not simply in word, but rather in deed and in truth, really showing that love. Um, scripture talks about here's the love of God. We uh, uh, keep his commandments, and here's the love for the brethren. We keep God's commandments. That is to say, doing right by them, by God's uh, moral standard. It's not just a feeling, but it is a disposition. And it's being disposed toward the brethren, well, even toward our enemies, but certainly toward our, we want their good. We want their best. And therefore, it is an internal thing that will show itself by way of deeds, laying down our lives for one another. Well, this is our responsibility as God's children uh, to love one another uh, as brothers, because we are. Even to have that warm-hearted love toward one another, and this is not set forth as some kind of very undesirable duty. You know, here's here's your obligation to uh, clean out toilets. Well, okay, that's my obligation. I'll do it, but I'm not going to necessarily delight in it. Well, this is not set forth. Remember uh, uh, Psalm 16, a messianic psalm, but it speaks to us. As to the saints who are on the earth, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. On the earth, they still got remaining corruption, but they're the excellent ones, and I see them as such, and I delight in them. Well, we know something of that in our fellowship with one another. You know, Paul would write in his epistles, beloved brethren. He really did love them. Well, we know something of that, surely, that kind of warm-hearted. And it's clear that God takes this responsibility Seriously. Well, by keeping up our closeness and our love for one another in a very experiential way, that uh, uh, brotherly love, that will aid us to also take it seriously, knowing that God knows. In Hebrews 6.10, he's not uh, unjust to forget uh, that labor of love that you've shown towards his name in loving, serving the saints. Brother, God is well pleased when he sees this love his children have because they're his children, they're brethren. Well, my God grant then that we will so love 
one another. More and more. Amen. Let's pray.